0: This podcast is brought to you by Rideout and Maybe LLP, Canada's intellectual property and technology law firm. I'm Matt Norwood. I'm a partner in Rideout's litigation group and high-tech patent practice group. Some of the information in the podcast will refer to the Canadian Intellectual Property Office, CIPO, which is responsible for managing patents, trademarks, and other forms of intellectual property in Canada. You can visit the links on this slide to learn more about Rideout and Maybe, about my areas of practice and expertise, or about the Canadian Intellectual Property Office. And now on to the topic of this podcast, help, I think I may be infringing a patent. This podcast is aimed at legal practitioners outside of the field of intellectual property who need to advise their clients about issues of patent liability, or at business owners or managers who have run afoul of the patent system in the most unpleasant way possible, an accusation or a suspicion that their business is infringing a patent. The three most common ways this question arises are laid out on the slide. First, receiving a demand letter, commonly called a cease and desist letter in the U.S. The second way is being served with a legal document called a statement of claim or a complaint Which are documents issued by a court that inform you that a lawsuit has been initiated against you. And the third way this comes up is when you or your client discover the patent independently, without anyone accusing you of infringing it. For example, you might hear about a competitor's new patent, or it might come up in the course of R&D for your own products. When this happens, you might notice troubling similarities between the patent and something your own client or company is doing or selling, and you may worry that there's a risk of being sued for infringing the patent. The first piece of advice is don't panic. Even if a patent looks very much like something you're selling, that doesn't necessarily mean there's a substantial risk of patent infringement. Patents are dense, highly technical, and extremely confusing documents, and you shouldn't worry about your exposure until you've carefully assessed the risk posed by the patent either by yourself or with the assistance of patent counsel. This podcast will walk you through a risk assessment procedure for patent infringement step by step. By the end of this process, you'll have a much better sense of whether the patent presents an actual threat that merits consultation with an IP professional. Before walking you through the risk assessment procedure, I'd like to provide an overview of what a patent is and how it works. A patent is a government-granted monopoly on an invention. In Canada, the U.S., and most other countries, a patent lasts for 20 years from when the applicant first files for patent protection. Once granted by a government, a patent gives the patent owner, called the patentee, a monopoly on making, using, or selling the invention in the country that issued the patent. Some countries provide additional exclusive rights to a patentee. For example, in the U.S., competitors are also barred from offering a patented invention for sale in the U.S., even if they never actually sell it. Importation is barred in most countries based on a presumption that the invention is being imported for the purpose of being used or sold. And sale from the country of the patent to someone outside the country is also usually included under the definition of sales taking place within the country. Patents are enforced through the courts. In Canada, patent infringement lawsuits are almost always brought in the federal court of Canada. But any patent infringement action brought in Canada or the U.S. will be a long, complex, and expensive process. A typical patent infringement action in Canada will go to trial within two to four years and will cost each side anywhere from a half a million dollars to, more typically, over a million dollars or even several million in complex, high-stakes industries. And while this sounds daunting, it also means that you have time to do a thorough assessment of the risks before making a decision about how to respond to a possible patent lawsuit. Now on to the risk assessment procedure. Step one is to identify the current owner of the patent. Typically, the owner will be a plaintiff in any lawsuit seeking to enforce the patent. So in the case of a patent infringement action that's already been initiated, the owner should be identified in the statement of claim or the complaint. However, you should confirm that this is the same entity listed as the owner at the patent office. The link on the slide will take you to the patent database at SIPO where you can find out who is registered as the current owner of the patent. While SIPO's information isn't always up to date, it's always a good idea to check. It may turn out that the person seeking to enforce the patent doesn't actually own it and so lacks standing to sue. In the case of a demand letter, as with a lawsuit, the owner of the patent will typically be identified and you should follow the same procedure here to confirm ownership according to SIPO's records. But it's in the third case, a patent you've discovered independently that the SIPO database becomes really indispensable. It can give you at least a starting point for an investigation into the ownership and chain of title of the patent. If the current owner of the patent turns out to be one of your main competitors, that probably indicates a greater risk of being sued, all things being equal, as opposed to a situation in which it's owned by someone you've never heard of who isn't active in your industry. In the case of a US patent, Click on the link at the bottom of the slide to visit the public payer website maintained by the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, which will grant you access to information about patent ownership for U.S. patents. When reading an actual patent document, the owner at the time the patent was issued will generally be listed on the front page. This slide shows the cover page of a Canadian patent on the left and a U.S. patent on the right. Both of these cover pages contain a lot of information But for now we're only interested in the fields indicating the inventor and the applicant owner or assignee the Canadian patent on the left follows an older format in which these fields aren't actually named but are instead indicated by a number field 72 is the inventor while field 73 is the applicant or owner More recent Canadian patents follow a more legible format in which these fields are named instead of numbered. This patent lists Wallace Johnson as both the inventor and the applicant. This probably means that Mr. Johnson owned the patent at the time it was issued. Otherwise, if Mr. Johnson had assigned his rights in the patent to another party, such as a company he worked for prior to filing for the patent, then that company would typically be listed as the applicant or owner. However, you can visit the SIPO links on the previous slide to find out whether any documents have been filed with the Patent Office since the patent issued to update this ownership information. The US patent on the right follows the convention of naming the fields. In this case, a field for the inventor and, if applicable, a field for the assignee. The patent shown here, listing Eddie Van Halen as the inventor, doesn't list an assignee. This probably means that Mr. Van Halen was the owner of the patent at the time that it issued. Again, you can visit the USPTO link on the previous slide to confirm whether the US Patent Office's information has been updated as to ownership at any time since the patent issued. Once we have a sense of who owns the patent and how that might affect the likelihood of the patent being enforced against you, the second step is to determine whether the patent is still in force or whether the owner's monopoly has expired. As I already mentioned, patents typically last 20 years from when they were applied for. In Canada, when a patentee seeks to enforce a patent in the federal court, a six-year limitation period applies. This means that any infringement that takes place during the lifetime of the patent can be the subject of a lawsuit, but only if the lawsuit is filed within six years of the infringing activity. Any use or sale of a patented invention more than six years before the lawsuit is filed is typically subject to a limitation defense. This means that if the Canadian patent you're looking at has a filing date more than 26 years ago it's probably no longer enforceable. Turning again to our example Canadian and US patents, you can find their filing dates identified on the cover page. The Canadian patent on the left shows the filing date as field 22, in this case, May 29, 1997. This means that the patent expired in May 2017. It also means that a lawsuit filed to enforce this patent in May 2019 would typically only be able to recover damages for infringement that took place between May 2013, six years before the lawsuit was filed, and May 2017 when the patent expired. It also means that there is no risk of an injunction, but we'll get into a more detailed discussion of remedies later. The US patent on the right has a filing date of July 30th, 1985. While that could mean that it expired in 2005, in this case the patent is actually old enough that it's governed by an older version of the US patent statute, which gave it a lifetime of 17 years from when it issued in 1987. In any event, The patent is long expired, and anyone should now be free to make, use, or sell their own version of Eddie Van Halen's musical instrument support described in this patent. Determining the lifetime of a US patent can be somewhat complicated. In addition to patents like this one issued under the old statute, the term of a US patent can be affected by previously filed applications, by delays in the processing of the application, and potentially by other factors. 20 years from filing is still a good rule of thumb, but if it's at all a close case, you should consult with a patent lawyer. Some patents expire prematurely if the owner doesn't pay the requisite fees to maintain them. You can use the links on this slide to pull up the administrative status of a Canadian or US patent, which should tell you if the patent has expired prematurely due to non-payment of maintenance fees. If the patent is still in force, we turn to step 3. The question of what you might be doing to infringe the patent. Remember that a patent provides an exclusive right to the patentee to make, use, or sell the invention in the country that issued the patent. In the case of a Canadian patent, are you doing anything in Canada that might constitute making, using, or selling the invention described in the patent? Now this can sometimes be a complex question implicating technical points of Canadian patent law. For example, if you're selling a device from outside of Canada, the device is covered by a Canadian patent and some of your customers are in Canada, then the question of infringement may turn on where ownership of the device changes hands. For example, if the shipment of the order is FOB your country, you're usually safe from Canadian patent liability. But if it's FOB Canada, you may have exposure. Similarly, if you complete several steps of a process or a method, such as a chemical synthesis outside of Canada, but you perform additional steps within Canada, or if you import the resulting synthesized chemical into Canada, then the question of your liability under a Canadian patent may turn on the details of how the invention is claimed in the patent. Furthermore, there are a few forms of indirect infringement in Canadian patent law. For example, even if you don't infringe the patent in Canada, you may still be liable for inducing someone else to infringe it if you influence them in such a way that it leads to their infringing activity. All in all, there are many caveats and edge cases when it comes time to classify infringing activity under Canadian law, and you may need to consult patent counsel to sort this question out. However, if you're confident that your business is not doing anything in Canada that could be considered making, using, or selling the patented invention, nor are you doing anything to encourage or induce your customers or clients in Canada to infringe the patent, then you probably don't have any liability under the Canadian patent. Let's look at our Canadian and U.S. patent documents again. The country issuing the patent is clearly listed on the cover page. In this case, The upper left-hand corner of each document shows that one was issued by the Canadian Intellectual Property Office, while the other is marked as a United States patent. This is always a quick check you can do before you start worrying about your exposure. If you don't operate in Europe in any capacity, then you generally don't have to worry about a German patent that comes across your desk. Note however that patents often come in families. Just because you've dug up a German patent doesn't mean that there isn't a Canadian counterpart floating around out there somewhere. A patent lawyer or patent searcher can dig up related patents from other jurisdictions if you want to find out whether the invention is the subject of a patent in the markets where you do operate. On to step four, do you infringe the claims of the patent? If the patent is still in force, and there's a chance that you're doing something in the country where the patent applies that resembles the invention described in the patent, then the next step in your risk assessment is to read a portion of the patent called the claims to find out the actual scope of the legal monopoly granted by the patent. A patent might describe or illustrate one or even several different devices or methods or chemical compounds, and the description of the invention might be quite broad. But this doesn't mean that everything described in the patent is the exclusive prerogative of the patentee. Instead, the actual legal monopoly granted by the patent is very precisely set out in the final portion of the patent, called the claims. Patent claims can be excruciatingly difficult and frustrating to read and interpret. They're drafted in a highly stylized, some would say stilted, format. For an example, see the claim on the right-hand side of the slide. A typical patent will have anywhere from 10 to 50 claims, although some patents in fields like pharmaceuticals end up with claims numbering in the hundreds. Unfortunately, due to the ever-changing and complex nature of the case law on patent interpretation, even an experienced patent lawyer can have trouble rendering a confident opinion about whether a similar product or method does or doesn't fall within the scope of a patent claim. In a patent lawsuit, each party puts forward one or more expert witnesses, and the testimony of these experts at trial often forms the basis for a judge's interpretation of the language of a patent claim. A lot can depend on the quality of expert evidence proffered at trial, which is just one of the factors complicating the job of a patent lawyer in interpreting a claim. That being said, A patent lawyer should be able to provide fairly clear guidance as to what types of activity clearly do or clearly don't fall within the scope of the claims. If your activity is clearly infringing or clearly not infringing, a reading of the claims by a patent lawyer should be able to give you concrete and actionable guidance. If all the news up until now is bad, if the patent is in force, if you're doing the wrong thing in the wrong country and your activity might fall within the scope of the patent claims. Then we proceed to step 5. We ask whether the patent is valid. All patent applications are examined by an examiner at the patent office. While examiners try to weed out applications that don't meet the standards for patentability, they don't have the time or resources available to litigants in a patent infringement proceeding. As a result, it's quite common for the patent office to issue a patent only to have it deemed invalid by a court years later on the basis of evidence and arguments put forward by a defendant. Procedurally, a patent being enforced in a legal proceeding benefits from a presumption of validity on the basis of the examination it received at the patent office. However, defendants have a number of grounds for invalidating patents. The most common avenue of attack is to produce evidence that the invention claimed in the patent is not new, that someone else disclosed the same invention at an earlier date or that even if it is new, it's so similar to what came before that it does not constitute an inventive improvement over existing products or processes. If you need to assess the likelihood that a patent can be invalidated for lack of novelty or lack of inventiveness, you probably want to gather evidence of prior art any publications or products on the market before the filing date of the patent. With the help of a patent lawyer, this prior art should give you a rough sense of how likely the patent is to survive an attack on its validity. There are a number of other avenues of attack on the validity of a patent, and your patent lawyer can give you an opinion outlining any alternative grounds for invalidating the patent. Finally, if there's still a chance you could be successfully sued for infringing the patent, we move on to step six, assessing the extent of potential liability. The primary remedy sought in most patent infringement cases is monetary compensation for infringing activity. In Canada, a patentee is generally entitled to either their damages, such as lost sales as a result of the infringer's competing sales that infringe the patent, or an accounting of the infringer's profits from those infringing sales. These amounts are often of comparable size, assuming similar profit margins by both parties. Remember that the six-year limitation period applies. This means that only infringing activity in the six years before the lawsuit, as well as any activity while litigation is ongoing, will be captured in making this calculation of damages or profits. And of course, if the patent issued less than six years before the lawsuit was filed, there may be a period prior to issuance in which full damages or profits are not available. The second main form of relief available to patentees is injunctive relief. A defendant can be ordered to permanently stop making, using, and selling the invention in Canada. They can also be ordered to destroy or turn over any remaining infringing inventory. A third major form of relief available to successful patentees in Canada is compensation for legal costs. In practice, successful litigants in the federal court are only awarded a fraction of their litigation expenses. Depending on the outcome and the conduct of the parties, this might range from 20% to 50% of the legal fees and related disbursements incurred by the law firm representing the victorious party. As mentioned on the last slide the timeline of the patent's issuance and expiration may affect the remedies available. Injunctions are only available under patents that are still in force. If the patent has expired by the time a judgment issues, the patentee is out of luck with respect to injunctive relief. Typically, there's no cause of action available if the patent expired more than six years ago. And finally, only infringing activity between the issue date and the expiration date of the patent creates full liability for damages or profits. Here's a diagram that helps to visualize your potential liability under a patent. The blue arrow indicates the lifetime of the Canadian patent application and issued patent. The orange arrow indicates the lifetime of a typical patent infringement lawsuit in Canada, showing the six year limitation period, extending backward from filing the action, then the two to four years to trial, then the typically 6-12 to months after trial until a judgment issues. If there's any infringement after publication but before the patent is granted, in period B on the blue arrow, then assuming that the patent eventually issues, the patentee is entitled to a remedy called reasonable compensation. This is a monetary remedy and it usually means that you have to pay a royalty on any infringing sales during this period. Once the patent issues and before it expires during period C, the patentee is entitled to all remedies, damages or an accounting of profits, injunctions, and so on. Once the patent expires in period D, the public is generally free to practice the invention. So in summary, the overlap of period C with periods E, F, and G on the orange arrow is the period in which damages or profits are on the table. The overlap of period B with period E is the period in which reasonable compensation, usually a reasonable royalty, is available to the patentee. And an injunction is a possibility if the judgment at the end of period G is before the patent expiration between periods C and D. So that's our step-by-step risk assessment procedure. Now I'm going to go back and qualify everything I've said like a typical lawyer, but I'll also provide what I hope will be actionable, strategic advice about how to handle these sorts of risks in the real world. First, as I've mentioned throughout this podcast, all of these issues can be complicated by exceptions and edge cases. Patent law is unfortunately highly uncertain. Even issues that seem straightforward, like the duration of a patent or the territory in which it applies, can potentially lead to complex questions whose answers aren't certain. If you think there's any chance that you might fall into one of these edge cases, your safest course of action is always to consult with a patent lawyer in the relevant jurisdiction. Second, if you reach step four, and you're faced with interpreting the patent claims, that's also a point at which you should seriously think about retaining patent counsel. If you reach the end of the assessment, and you think that there's a substantial risk that you may have exposure under the patent, here are a few practical tips for how to proceed. First, if this is a patent you dug up yourself, and nobody is accusing you of infringing it, it's almost always a good idea to let sleeping dogs lie. There are lots of patents out there, and very few of them ever get enforced. If you're confident that the owner of the patent isn't a competitor, and they don't seem to be doing anything with it, you may want to consider making an offer to acquire it if you think it could provide you with a competitive advantage or reduce your risk by taking it off the table as a potential weapon to be used against you. If the worst has already come to pass and you've been sued for infringement, you really need to bite the bullet and hire litigation counsel. Most patent litigators will give you a free initial consultation in which they'll assess your case and give you a sense of your options. It might not be as bad as you think. Finally, if you're facing a demand letter from the patentee accusing you of infringing the patent, you should not only retain patent litigation counsel but also consider striking first before they can sue you. In Canada, filing an action for declaratory relief to invalidate a patent gives you a number of advantages in managing the course of the litigation. Your patent litigation counsel can advise you as to your best strategy. So that's it for the Ride Out and Maybe podcast. Help, I think I might be infringing a patent. If you have any questions about the contents of the podcast, please reach out to me, Matt Norwood by phone or email.